The text for this morning's message is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, that when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. I began a new series this morning under the banner, The Greatest of These is Love. And uh, Noel said, I could be forgiven one sermon in which I virtually never refer to the text. This sermon this morning is uh, not taken from 1 Corinthians 13, except insofar as that last phrase, the greatest of these is love, is going to provide the banner under which I preach now for the foreseeable future. You say, how long is this, how long is this series going to last? I say, well, I go on vacation in July. And uh, I'm not promising it will be over by then, but it might be. You pray that I'll have guidance. The series is The Greatest of These is Love. And what I want to do today is 
give you ten reasons for the theory. And uh, they all have text to go with them. And so even though I'm not putting everything under 1 Corinthians 13, I hope everything I say will be biblical. The reasons begin with the big theological, biblical rooting of the messages. And they flow down to the more contemporary, experiential, church, personal related issues. Okay? So hang on as we move from the one to the other. Each in its own way is very important, I think. Number one, reason for this series of messages. In 1 John 4, 8, Jesus said, I mean John said, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And eight verses later, he said the same thing. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. For God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. Now, this is a massive claim that God is love. When I thought, what should be reason number one? What would be the deepest reason I could think of for why we should preach on love for a series of weeks? I could not go any deeper than the statement, God is love. God is love. Now, we're going to need to unpack that in the weeks to come. But let me unpack it in a few sentences as best I can. I think that means that God is so full So absolutely full of life and light and glory and goodness and justice and wisdom and truth and beauty and everything else that is good. He is so full that it belongs to his very nature, not only to be self-sufficient, but overflowing. By his nature, he's a giver a worker for others, an infinitely resourceful person. He never is exhausted. He never is at wit's end. He never murmurs. He's never frustrated. And he never pouts. I find pouting to be one of the greatest hindrances to love in my life. Pouting. God never pouts. He's never in that kind of a mood. He is love, so full, so great, so awesome, that it is his nature, it is him to give, to overflow. Which which is why the very fundamental demand upon the human being is receive. Not work, not give, but receive and be satisfied. Number two. Reason number two, Matthew twenty-two thirty-six, a teacher, that is a lawyer, comes to Jesus and he asks him this question. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? In other words, tell us when you read the Old Testament, Jesus, what do you see? What sums up everything? What's the main thing over everything else? Can you give us one? Now, you got to watch Jesus answer here. Because he, he always responds to people, but he never 
never quite tells them what they want to hear. <laughs> it's a little more than they want to hear. And so he, he answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's what he wanted to hear. But he didn't stop there. He said, the second is like it. And I honor them like it. Like it. That's a big, big phrase for us. It's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, he didn't ask about the second one, but he got it. And the reason, evidently, that Jesus says that if I give you one, I've got to give you two. Because you can't have the one without the other. The one doesn't work without the other. If you say you got the one and you don't have the other, you don't have the one. They go together. So reason number two for a series on love, and I do have in mind mainly love for each other, is that when Jesus was asked for the main thing, he insisted on giving the second thing like the main thing. Like the main thing. Number three. The next verse, verse 40 of Matthew 22, Jesus says this amazing thing about love. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What a way to read the Old Testament. It's all a book about love. These things are all hanging there on love. Love to God and love to neighbor. But, but here's the amazing thing about what Paul did with that word of Jesus in Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the whole law. And you want to say, wait a minute, what about command number one? You didn't mention it. You didn't say it the way Jesus said it. And I'm sure if Paul heard us say that, he'd say, I know what I say. I know what I say. I write the way I mean to write. And we need to ask in the weeks to come, what? How can he elevate number two, command number two, which is like command number one, to the point where he says, if you knew that, you fulfill the whole law. Let me read the rest of it. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If there's any commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. So reason number three for this series is if we love each other, our neighbor, we fulfill the whole law. I like that. I want to do that. Number four. In Galatians 5, 6, Paul says, In Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail, but what avails everything? Faith working through love. Now think about that for just a minute. This religious practice of circumcision, uncircumcision, that does not count for very much. What counts for a lot is faith, that's commandment number one, working through love, that's commandment number two, meaning 
the evidence of this reality over here that we claim to have, I have faith, the evidence of that reality is, is it effective through love? So I hear three weeks ago those words from Isaiah 58. What proves the validity and authenticity of your fasting on Sunday? How you treat your workers on Monday. And I hear here what proves the validity of your faith claims. I believe you. I trust you. I love you. Jesus. How you treat your wife, children, fellow Christians, ordinary people at work, neighbors, public figures who say things that make you upset. We'll see if you have faith. Isn't that a remarkable thing? So reason number four is that um, Paul elevates love to the litmus paper of faith. Here's the way John put it. 1 John 3.14 We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. The test of whether you're alive. You wonder, am I alive this morning? Am I real? Is, do you love the people sitting around you? Number five. John thirteen thirty four. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. That you love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, I like it. I like it when people put fish on their bumpers, fish symbols. I like it when people wear crosses. For eight years I wore a cross preaching in this church. I want to remember remember those days. I wore a silver cross for the first eight years in this pulpit, right around my neck. I like that. It's done tastefully. I like it when we hang in our windows the uh, hope in God signs. But if you ask Jesus, What's the badge? What's the, what's this little thing? In reality, for Christians, he would say, they will know you are my disciples if you love each other. That's the badge. If you want to put a badge on, first badge you put on is love your fellow Christian that's hard to love. That's the badge that Jesus says. So I said, wow. We better... Not just put fish on our bumpers and crosses around our necks and triangles, squares, diamonds in our windows, but love in our walk, mouths. <laughs> we, this morning at the breakfast table, we re- we're reading through James as a family right now. And we read James um, 3, 1 to 12, is it? It's 12 verses anyway on the tongue. More on the tongue than anything in James. What a forest is set ablaze by this little member. I stop at that. You put a, a bit in a, in a horse's mouth and you hold the whole horse. You put a little teeny rudder about the size of this pulpit under a ship the size of this sanctuary. 
And you got the whole ship. And James says, that's the way the mouth is. The last thing to come under control is our mouth. And if it came under control, everything. I said to the boys, it's harder to control your tongue than your sexual organs, guys. It is. It's more easy to get continence and be a chaste person sexually than to get this thing under control. James says the last thing to come. It's the last thing. And if you could get that thing fixed, everything else would be fixed. Isn't that amazing? What a word to us. I'm going to preach a sermon on that or a, or a Sunday evening time. Let's take James and we'll unpack it together so we can all work on it together because that's my sin. I even sin against the dog. Jonathan Edwards told me that it's, it's absolutely absurd to become angry at a non-moral being, including clutches and dogs. And so to, to swear at a clutch or to kick a dog is a, a low thing to do because there's no moral ground for indignation. <laughs> it's a dog. Oh, we've got lots of work to do. I do, anyway. Number six. First Timothy 1.5. Paul tells us what everything he teaches aims at. Listen to this word. The goal of our instruction is love. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. So you've got sincere faith, you've got good conscience, you've got pure heart. And the goal of it all is love. Yes to the faith, yes to the conscience, yes to the purity. But it's all leading to love. And if that isn't there, nothing. It doesn't matter. It doesn't count. Paul's not content just to do those things. And so I said, we've got to work on this. I got as pastor and in my preaching to share the goals that the apostles had for their teaching. And preaching. Now, number seven. Here we're moving into the last section. And we're moving more toward um, the contemporary, the urgent, the Bethlehem-based, the Piper-based reasons for this series. Number seven. In Matthew 24, 9 to 12, Jesus talks about the end of the age and the last times. Now, I'm not a predictor of the last times. In fact, you know, hundreds of you, perhaps, are reading with me right now, Matthew. And today, or yesterday, we finished Matthew 24, I think, or the day before. And I underlined the key phrase in my eschatology. And the key phrase, Jesus said, The Son of Man will come at an hour you do not expect. That's my eschatology. Which means, if you know when he's coming, by definition, you're wrong. You're wrong. He is coming at an hour when you do not expect. Which simply means, and that's the point of the whole chapter, plus chapter 25 and all the parables, be ready, all the time. So that when you are surprised, you won't be disappointed. You will be surprised. Believe me, you will be surprised when the trumpet sounds and the skies split. You will be surprised. He is coming at an hour when nobody, nobody except the Father expects. And I suppose he'll whisper it in the son's ear just a few seconds beforehand. And they'll be coming. 
And we will be stunned and surprised, but we won't be disappointed if we've been loving each other. Now, all that's a preface to this text. This description of the last day is very discouraging and bleak. It's all about hatred and love. Listen, this is Matthew 24, 9 following. They will deliver you to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time, many will fall away. We're talking now professing Christians. Many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. That's an awful picture of the church as the time comes. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. I read that and I say, God, no, 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 no. Not here, not me, not this church, not Minneapolis. I believe with all my heart that Jesus' prophecy of the coldness of many hearts at the end of the age does not imply that any particular heart in this room right now has to be one of those. It does not imply that. Nor does it imply that any particular church has to be frozen out at the end of the age. And I would even go so far as to say, nor does it imply that any particular city has to be frozen out at the end of the age or denomination It's going to be big. It's going to be awful. There's going to be this glacier. This is my picture of how the age is coming to an end. There's this glacier of lawless coldness that's moving over the world. But verse 14, just a couple of verses later, says this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations who are hating those testifiers. And then the end will come. Well, who takes that gospel? Cold people? No way. Red hot people are taking that gospel. And red hot people at home are sending those people. And therefore, alongside cold people, you got hot people. And I say, oh God, let us be hot with love. Let us be hot with love to Jesus and love for one another. Let us not be under the glacier. Let's torch the glacier. That's the way I conceive my, my ministry. I want to torch the glacier with you. Make a big hole. One of of the little children a year ago or so when I referred to this glacier thing, she drew me a a picture of the glacier and there was this big hole over Bethlehem and we were all sticking our flame up in it and God's light was shining down through it. And that's the way I pray that it will be. It's a terrible picture of the end of the age. But we don't have to be under the glacier. Number eight. Our nation... Uh, is permeated now, it seems, with varying degrees of a spirit of hatred and rancor and mean-spiritedness. It ranges from neo-Nazi types who openly declare their hatred for Jews and for most non-Aryan peoples to children who kill their parents, to gangs who cultivate a whole ethos of rage and anger in the very way they talk, to radio talk show hosts 
who capitalize on people's unseemly love for cutting cleverness and put-downs, to politicians who know that sound bites do not provide for an adequate space to deal fairly with the other viewpoint and therefore seek for the most pointed, barbed, loaded, demonizing way to not only undermine the viewpoint, but the character of the people on the other side. There's something about our media that, that seems to feed this whole thing rather than cultivating civil discourse. Do you just, how can you have discourse? I'm going to do an interview on the radio, on the, on the telephone for radio tomorrow. I hate these. And you had to, John set it up for me. <laughs> and so I'm going to do it. But I know that it's going to come in little pieces. They can do anything they want with it. You can make it sound any way they want. It is so hard to be a media person today and honor truth, the complexity of truth, the breadth of truth. Our nation is permeated. Listen to these words of scripture and see if they don't sound like today. This is 2 Timothy 3.1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips. Without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Wow. I wish I could encourage, I am going to encourage, I wish I could succeed in having you all read two articles in Christianity Today. The one that looks like this. This is in our library, if you want to follow up on my suggestion. It's this issue, last issue. The first article is this one, uh, Casualties of Culture Wars, written by John Woodbridge, a professor down at Trinity Seminary. It was a very convicting article for me, very helpful one. He raises the question, how can we, in this milieu of America right now present the whole biblical Christ when several of our convictions about morality like abortion or say homosexuality or sex education and how it's done in public schools several of these are so politicized now and the rhetoric surrounding them is so inflamed that the only thing that is heard coming out of the Christian church is issues. It's just an issue. It's an issue thing. Everywhere you go, there's issues you've got to deal with. So what do you do? How do you present 
a whole body picture of a great and glorious God who loves the world, whose Son is in His image and nature, who lived a life of love touching lepers and children and outcasts, and who died for sin and rose triumphant over death and reigns at the Father's right hand and longs to bring people into a full eternal fellowship with Him. How do you even get that out so that it can be heard when an issue is so hot and I don't have the answer to that this morning. So I'm glad I'm only giving an introduction to the questions. But that's what I, I beckon you to join me in the next week's thinking, praying about. I believe God wants to so teach us about love that we think of ways of being part of the solution in the culture wars rather than part of bringing them beyond culture wars to bullet wars. Because they are fast moving from culture wars to bullet wars. The other article in here, a couple pages later, even convicted me and moved me more. Uh, the Mark of the Christians, a reprint from our old friend Francis Schaeffer. He's with the Lord now. Now Francis Schaeffer in that article talked about how Christians are to love each other when they disagree with each other. And it's the most uh, compelling, powerful treatment of that I've read. And he gives a paragraph which to me sets the agenda for my desire in these sermons. And I'll read it to you. Very powerful uh, word. He says, We have conferences about everything else. Who has ever heard of a conference to consider how true Christians can exhibit in practice a fidelity to the holiness of God and yet simultaneously exhibit in practice a fidelity to the love of God before a watching world? Who ever heard of sermons? I say, mm. Who ever heard of sermons or writings that carefully present the practice of two principles that at first seem to work against each other. One, the principle of the practice of the purity of the visible church in regard to doctrine and life. And second, the principle of the practice of an observable, observable love and oneness among all true Christians. Well, that's the quest, brothers and sisters. That's my quest. For the bigger picture of how we as a church and we as an evangelical movement and we as a larger body of Christ called Christians can make the whole biblical Christ known in a way that his holiness, his truth and his purity stand uncompromised and yet observable demonstrations of love are so palpable they can't be denied because if that doesn't happen how does Jesus word by this men will know that you're my disciples or you'll be one as I and the father are one and they'll know that I sent the father that's the challenge before us in a politicized culture war situation here's reason number nine that moves now to Bethlehem in the midst of this article by Schaefer, he gives another quote that is really remarkable about the golden moment of the Christian church. 
And he says the golden opportunity of the Christian church is when you really disagree with each other. We read the key sentences. It is in the midst of difference that we have our golden opportunity. When everything is going well and we are all standing around our nice little circle, there is not much to be seen by the world. But when we come to the place where there is a real difference and we exhibit uncompromised principles, but at the same time, observable, there it is again, observable love, then there is something that the world can see, something they can use to judge that these really are Christians and Jesus has indeed been sent by the Father. So let me tell you three golden opportunities that we have. Number one, the differences among us for how we assess the loss of the organ a year ago this month. There are ongoing, abiding differences among us as to how I and the staff and the elders handle that process. So the challenge before us is multifold. It is not just what should love have looked like then in that critical, complex, difficult hard, enraging, breaking, terrifying situation. But now, what does love look like as we handle our different assessments of what love should have looked like? That's the present challenge. Number two. And I, I really believe, by the way, one more thing on that. I have been treated with incredible grace by many people in regard to that. My heart is overflowing this morning with gratitude to many people who graced me, who disagree with me. And this week I read something in the Bible that gave me great encouragement in, in that regard, namely the regard of uh, how pastors survive by the grace of their people. I read it in James, we read in James, and uh, it said, let not many of you become teachers, because teachers will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. That was James' across-the-board statement about pastors. So I have been graced and uh, will need grace, I do not doubt, for the next 15 years of my ministry. Number two, we have differences among us about how or what we feel would be helpful in worship. What songs should be sung? Contemporary hymns. What instruments should be used? Guitar, bass, piano, brass, organ. What mood and ethos should be set. Should should I wear a suit or not? Should we use a big, thick wooden pulpit or a little thin glass pulpit? Uh, we're just all over the place on these issues. 
Now the master planning team meets this Saturday all day. It's a big issue. It's a big meeting, folks. Pray all day as we wrestle with who we are and where we're going. The question for me now that is before the question of uh, how then shall we worship is how then shall we love when we don't agree on how to worship. That's the bigger question, isn't it? How did, what, not just what will worship look like at Bethlehem, but the more fundamental question, what will love look like among people who can't agree on what worship should look like? Do we just say, well, worship in different churches? Yeah, that is one answer. It isn't the only one, perhaps. That's the kind of thing we will be wrestling with. I, I, I ask you, I plead with you, to join the struggle, just join the struggle. <laughs> We're all in it together. There is no us-them. It's just, what shall we be? And we're not going to throw stones at any other church if we can ever decide what the ethos and tone of a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening and a Wednesday evening service should be. And what instruments will govern and dictate and what kind of leadership and what kind of songs. It's, it is so easy to criticize and so hard to solve the problem. And I, I'm almost 50 years old. And that's part of it, I suppose. But more and more, I want to be part of solutions. <laughs> Adolescents and students have the rare privilege of just Asking questions. And once you get to a certain age, in fact, it comes in stages. When you lose your parents, it's a big one. More and more, you become buck stoppers. And there's nobody to turn around and say, yeah, what about that? Yeah. And say, oh, I have to answer that. I've got to solve this problem. And you're all in different stages. You're all in different stages of being buck stoppers in your life. And I just ask you to, to join in in prayer. God's got something for us. It's going to be good. It's going to be really good. I can smell it on the master planning team. Can't see it. I can smell it. Yeah. The third difference among us, these are golden opportunities, Schaefer said. You believe that? The third difference among us is the herbs and the birds. And I don't mean Wayne and Marie. Uh, herbs. I mean the U-R-B-S and the B-U-R-B-S. The people who live in the city and eat, drink, and sleep. Urban ministry. Go get them, Jim Bloom. And the others who live in the suburbs. And also long and love to minister and see this society at many different levels permeated with the gospel. As we heard from Jim Bloom. There's a tension there. Talk to people. And that's good. It's a golden opportunity. I'm glad we are not just the one or the other. Now, I close with one last reason for the series that relates, I said, personally to me. I 
want to preach on this series because I want to study these texts because I want to pray and be prayed for because I want to be a more loving father, husband, pastor, citizen. I know, and you've heard this before, that no businessman ever lay down on his deathbed and looked up into the eyes of his family and friends and said, I wish I'd really spent more time at the office. Nobody ever says that. Translated into my life, it says, what, is, what does love look like when you're shepherding a thousand people? What does love look like in that person's case? In that person's case? I didn't even know your name. What does love look like among that people? Let me close giving the illustration of the struggle and the, what the Lord's teaching me. And it's just kind of a little baby step of, you know, I'm, I'm so encouraged by the word of Paul in Philippians 1.9, where he told me, it isn't an all or nothing thing, John. Don't be discouraged that you either got it or you don't got it. It's not an all or nothing thing. Because what he said there was, I pray that your love may abound still more and more in all knowledge and discernment. I say, oh, good. That means that there can be measures of love which are not what they ought to be and yet are genuine and can be built on and grown into. If you're a Christian this morning, you're a loving person. Did you know that? You are. Because the Holy Spirit is within you and His fruit is love and the seeds are all there and they do come out. The issue is growth. Now, the illustration. The last two weeks, the elders gave me, and I thank you for it, two weeks of leave-taking to finish the book uh, Living by Faith in Future Grace. And there it is. I did it. Because you prayed. And here's the illustration. When I finished this Friday night and put the family touches on it and handed it over to Editor Noel. You know what my main question was? Was that an act of love? Is this a work of love? Now, I don't know about your personality or your spiritual makeup, but questions like that for me just aren't easy. Was this, was this done in love? Or am I on an ego trip? Another book. My name on the front of it. You know the answer that the Lord, I think, gave me? When, I wish I could say it better. Because I, I could tell as I tried to say it in the first service, they weren't getting it. I'll try again. Um... I, I asked that question, put the thing aside, and uh, the phone rang. No, that was last night. We've got a 24-hour gap here. The phone rings last night. It's about Randy and the baby uh, with a heart problem. And uh, and I said to Joan, Where, where's Randy? She says, well, he's, he's down at Children's. His wife is over at Fairview. So anybody with Randy? He says, I, I don't know. I don't think anybody knows about it yet. Okay. All right. I think I'll run down to Randy. Now, 
I talked to Randy and we prayed together. And what the Lord said to me is, if you show love over here, it will either add to or subtract from the authenticity of the love shown here. And if in this situation, say the preaching situation, you show love, it will either vindicate the authenticity or not of the love shown here and here. In other words, when I try to know my heart, I can never, given one isolated act, say something I do for my wife or something for one of you or, or anything, just an isolated act, I can never say with complete subjective conviction, that was love. It seems like I'm always second guessing and saying, ah, but how do you know it was love? You might have ulterior motives there. And what gives my conscience peace is whether a pattern develops. So that being with Randy last night, whether there rose up in my heart the feeling, I love this guy. That's a big burden now. The guy the rest of their lives are going to deal with this baby. Yeah, yeah, I think I really do care for you. Which means that book is real. 